0: And we are live with our 173rd episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson, at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my lovely co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, Super excited to get together this week and talk. There's a few things that we wanted to bring up before we dive into it. I've got some you know, tales from... Code review slash pen testing that I want to share here shortly. But before we jump into it, LocomocoSec training. You know, if you've been listening, that we are going to be giving our secure code review training at LocomocoSec at the end of July. Uh, please consider us if you're going to be there. We would love to have anyone. Um, and we did get notification over the last week that we will be doing a practical secure code review at defcon as well. So DEF CON is doing paid trainings or doing professional trainings after the conference. So it's a little bit different. Um, We've done it. Obviously, we've done it for Black Hat before in the past. And anyway, right, whatever. Uh, This year, we're going to be doing it after. So it's like the, the Monday and Tuesday after DEF CON. I think that's like the August 12th and 13th. Um, but we'll post those links once they become available. I know they're not quite, you know, up yet, um, but it'll be another great place to get the training. And, um, I don't think the cost is going to be as high as some of the other conferences because it is DEF CON. So, uh, watch for that. Um, outside of that, we do have new swag shirts. I think I, you can't even see me, but I am wearing the new Mm. absolute appsec shirt today. Um, so I've got a couple of requests that came in after last week, for shirts. Sure. So we'll be sending some out in the next week. Uh, and if you would like one, jump on Slack. Let us know. Um, I'll be happy to send you one. Uh, and they're they're close to what the old ones were, Ken. I mean, it's the same shirt. I haven't even sent Ken one yet because, you know, <laughs> I, I I hoard all the swag, apparently. But
0: Well, no, thankfully, we now have your... Uh, well, we have Aaron, who is amazing yeah. uh, and who is helping with, you know, more logistics and marketing and uh, helping ship things. And just overall, Aaron's been super helpful for the podcast. All the little, uh, uh, not little, uh, the short, the short clips you, you see on uh, our Instagram, any of the, uh, a lot of the tweets you see, all of that uh, is Aaron. So thank you to Aaron uh, behind the scenes, working tirelessly uh, to, to help us out.
1: Yes. Yes. Aaron's doing a good job. So, so swag wise, if you want anything, let us know. Um, Ken, anything else that you wanted to bring up before we jump into
0: it? Yeah. Just that we didn't a lot of requests for corporate training. Uh, We do corporate training in case anyone's interested. Um, We've, we we have a few options there. We modify it uh, as needed, of course, like some people have different needs internally than uh, the, the, standard stuff that we teach at conferences but just because we keep getting asked uh i just want to put it out there yes we do corporate training um it's not a weird question to ask us that um or anything like that um so yeah just putting that out there
1: okay yep yep and i think we we are going to drop a like if you've got questions concerning corporate training hit us up either at you know you know, Seth or Ken at absoluteappsec.com or even just info at absoluteappsec.com. We'll throw a button on the website here in a little bit about that. Um, and we have been talking about sponsorships as well. That's another, you know, option for people. We may, we may go that route. If you are interested to talk to either of us about that, please reach out. Um, okay. Outside of that, we can get into tales from um, penetration testing. All right, so um, one of the items that we've been, that I've been seeing over and over and over the last two, three, four, oh, I don't know. However long, I've been doing this for what, like three years, right, Ken? Something like that. Yes. But one one of the biggest items that we find in practically every test is user enumeration. And um, being able to guess what someone's username is or determine what someone's user's name is from an unauthenticated state based on application responses. So when we talk about um, assessments, we always talk about AAA, right? Ken, what, what is AAA? It's uh, authentication,
0: you know, authorization, and the lamest of. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Auditing, <laughs> auditing. Not any auditing, auditing.
1: No, actually, My auditing is incredibly process important. Process. I just
0: joke about how boring it is
1: (laughs) yes yes so like we always talk about that authentication obviously that's one of the huge security principles being able to identify users figure out who they are but most applications leak out information to unauthenticated users um, specifically around whether or not a user exists and has an account with that application Um, and like, this is, can be through like the login screen. I know we, you know, we always talk about VTM, like the vulnerable task manager that we use for training, but on the login screen there, it'll it'll give out different error messages based on whether the user exists or not. I don't always find it in, on the login screen. It's very rare nowadays that I see like user error messages on the login screen. I don't know about you, Ken, but that that's not one place that I'm I'm seeing it um mm. but i do see it more commonly uh during the registration process the forgot password process and you know forgot username process right those other authentication routines that people forget about right whenever i say authentication to most developers they instantly just think about credentials like username password and that seems to be the only way the only place that they think that they're identifying users mm-hmm. But we know as security people that we identify users via other mechanisms and the forgot password, forgot username, registration process are all authentication routines that have to be secured. But it's very difficult to actually solve user enumeration during those those authentication flows. It just is right Uh, like registration you've got to tell tell somebody whether or not that email address is already associated with an account because you're not going to have them sign up again so there's there's recommendations that we put in there around hey you know out of band communications we don't like uh respond on a single or to a single request on whether or not a user actually exists so this is all background right this is all background i'm testing we're looking at an application recently that uh, makes use of security questions, right? Um, So if I need to reset my password, it presents me with a screen that says, okay, answer these security questions that you filled out during the registration process, and we're gonna let you reset your password, right? Um, Now, obviously there's a couple of issues there, right? Like, or a couple, not necessarily issues, but security concerns that we have with, uh, with, you know, Security, security questions.
0: questions, yeah. There's a those I hate those. I really do. I hate, those is the sole mechanism for recovery. Yeah, I, I no no bueno, no good,
1: <laughs> no bueno. Yeah, I mean I I think like and and they seem to have fallen out of favor. To be honest with you, right? Like I don't see security questions good. as often as I did ten years ago. Right? Like it it seemed to be the initial. Hey, we're gonna ask you what what's your you know your favorite car, your mother's maiden name, you know those you know list of whatever. <laughs>
0: All the stuff questions. you put on Facebook.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is part of the reason that we got away from it. But there are still systems, especially in the corporate world, that use security questions. Um, and this, this application happened to be one of them. Uh, now, the, the developers of this application decided that, hey, security questions, this is a great way to solve the, um, the forgot password flow, right? Uh, they, wanted, they still wanted to use it. But... The initial request was, hey, tell us what your username is. And if you put in a username, it redirects you to the security questions page. Right? Um, and so what your the traditional problem that we would see user enumeration-wise in this flow is that if a username doesn't exist, it does not redirect you to the security questions page. Right? Um, but this this application was not vulnerable to that. The developers at some point had said, no, guess what we need to do? If the if A user does not exist it still actually pushes the requester to the security questions page right and so i'm like all right well that's cool so there's not the flaw there on the initial form as you're going through but then i started to examine the security questions page now my question to you ken as a developer what security questions do you display when a user does not exist
0: I mean, you're asking me to fit fit within uh, guidelines. I wouldn't even, parameters I wouldn't be using, but let me play, let me play, uh, let me play, the, play the part play of a developer. Developer. I'd probably yeah. use, I'd probably randomize, you know, the the same questions I would ask. Like, I don't know. Okay. Assuming there's like, say, a set of 15 questions and they have users randomly assigned or pick from, you know, say three out of that, that 15 that are available options. Well, then I'm going to randomize, I guess the only issue with randomizing in that case is that you'd almost have to create a temporary allocation of security. So, like if I picked three random questions from the 15, if you were to re enter that email address or username, I would then need to basically keep in memory the three I had chosen to show those same again, those same questions again, because otherwise you're going to run into the situation where, you know, like, Assuming, like I said, that 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 when somebody sets up their security questions, they're selecting three out of fifteen, and it's only going to be those three security questions. You don't want those security questions to rotate if you're using if you're making it up, right? If you're trying to emulate yep. that there is a user, um, I guess that those are the guidelines or parameters I, I would fall within.
1: Um, yep, and yeah. you're absolutely right. So, and this this is the flaw that I saw on the user enumeration page, or on the on the security questions page, is that I would I would go in and every time I put in a, a, a non-existent username, the security question set would change every single time I loaded that page. Whereas and and so the set was was having there was you know it, it's exactly the scenario you're describing. They had you know ten security questions that are in their list. And you pick five of them. They display on that page so you can reset your password. But if the user doesn't exist, it displays five security questions. But the uh-huh. next time that I submit that form, it displays another five or they're in a different order. As opposed to a regular user, one that exists, it always sends me back those same five questions, no, question, no matter what. right? And so it became this fairly easy you know, request response that... Hey, it, it it ends up you know it ends up being a user enumeration. It's fairly easy to run through, and you can you know yeah, you can pull username lists all day long and actually exploit it. So um, just another flaw. It was an interesting one because it had to do with that randomization. It had to do with this fact that the developers they've tried to eliminate the problem, but we we always seem to push that down the road, especially with user enumeration because it's so hard that we don't want to go to out of band or we don't want to um, like use an email address, we don't want to use like other components that we have um, to allow for this self, um, what do they call it? Yeah, w- whatever. They want to allow for password reset, right? And yeah. Self-recovery, anyway, it up, you know, I guess it self-recovery. would be. Self-recovery, yeah. Automated yeah. recovery yeah
0: and that's the thing that's that's the thing that's tough with the with with enumeration too is that for like for the general rule is the more vague or generic or simply lacking error messages are typically then the more uh weight your or workload you're putting on your your support folks your your help desk folks just simply because there's going to be a more room for humans to have some friction and run into issues. And, you know, it's like, okay, we're for GitHub. Most of our users are fairly technical, but not, a, you know, a corporate website, you know, you've got everybody from different positions within the company. So it, yeah, it can be fairly, fairly difficult to balance enumeration and not just enumeration, but there's other places where there's error messages you may not want to present for, you know, enumeration of like, I'll just, again, I'll use GitHub as an example, like repository, you know, and organization enumeration, right. And NWO name with yeah something. I can't remember <laughs> name with owner. Name with. Sorry. Name with owner. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, so you don't, you wouldn't want enumeration in those cases either, but again, like as you don't provide super helpful error messages, your, your support burden goes up. Yeah.
1: And I, I was going to see if I can actually show some of the, I I don't want to disclose the client, right? Like in NDAs and everything
0: else, always, you know, drop into that. Um,
1: But there was another. Just ruin your business
0: for us, Seth. If you cared, (laughs) you just ruin your (laughs) livelihood and your career for us. So
1: Um, I was going to actually show another error message. Um,
0: Maybe if I can. uh... And, yeah. and 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 uh, and I okay. want to expand yeah. while you're looking up. If do I have time Before. to expand upon something while you're yeah. looking something yeah. up? So Absolutely. this is the the other thing about um, that becomes difficult where you mes- mentioned that you don't see it in just the login. You see it in other places. So like take an account update for instance, especially when you're using like libraries or or third parties. Uh, yeah, libraries to within your application to do authentication. What will happen is you're essentially, you know, overwriting classes and sort of including this uh, library, which is taking over all the authentication bits, which means some of it's out of your control. Right. One of those things is oftentimes a uniqueness key on certain attributes. So, of course, like if you're if you have a user table, an email attribute should be. Unique, right? You don't want everybody to have the same email address, but that presents issues when you talk about like account updates, where again, that's reusing something that's built in. It's a library that's handling that update. You can override the overridden library for sure in most cases um, to do something custom, but most people don't, right? So they, they go with the standard uh, way that library operates, which includes the standard library, um, excuse me, errors that that library generates, which is uniqueness, stuff right whether that's email, username, whatever. So that becomes hard just because of the fact that like now you have to figure out where everywhere that you didn't code, you just included the library. You didn't code up these pages where those generic messages are going to be shown, right? Because typically you're gonna have like as part of your, your web page, you have your view which has the header that's reusable and it's just showing whatever errors are generated. So again if the if the library uh is just generating those and you're just spitting out any errors that come out you may not even be aware that because you didn't code that error yourself that you know it's 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 doing some sort of disclosure enumeration just simply through uniqueness checks
1: yeah long-winded
0: i know but it's important to understand that dynamic
1: yeah it is okay hold on i'm gonna show
0: and why it's not always intentional that those error messages are showing on behalf of the first party developers Although very much intentional of the third-party developers, yeah,
1: yeah, and it's it. I mean, it's all we, we see this quite often as well in um, like API calls, right? Because you're mm-hmm. trying to be as descriptive as possible to the front-end system as to what's going on, right? Um, and so we leak out that that's that same sort of of detail, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And like it, it, it's, it's not, it, again, like you said, it's not an, it's not an intentional choice a lot of times. Right. Um, Yeah.
0: But it, it well, happens. And we've looked yeah. at apps that are connecting to other apps to do authentication. And, and like, you're mm-hmm. not even at that point, you're pretty far removed from authentication. You're just pretty much validating that they pass the authentication check And, you know, getting back who the user is, and then that's setting their session, presumably. And then that's from that point forward, you know, in the application I'm thinking of anyways, that's about the extent of your... So anything that's being written in that service that you're calling out to to do authentication, it's like, you may not even know if there were changes where an error was introduced uh, and allows for enumeration. Yep.
1: Yeah. And, okay, so along those lines, (laughs) let me show you the other error that I found here. Um, and I did strip out some of the stuff. Uh, so it, it, we should be all right. Okay, let me see. <laughs> okay. So this, go this live. one live. <laughs> go live. Yes. So uh, this one was um this is during the user registration process as well. Right. Um, and it okay. actually is probably the arguably a more fatal flaw than the one that we've identified previously, but it is enumeration based. So let me share ah oh, crap my google chrome can't actually is there another way for me to share this
0: dang it if not i can tell a story while you're getting that all sorted <laughs> um to 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 explain why enumeration because on, on its own it's like okay great you can you know i think okay just real quick while you're figuring this all out enumeration on its own usually people are like okay how's that like any kind of severity whatsoever, really, right? You're disclosing they exist. Great. Okay. What do you can do with that? Now, the, the the typical sort of baseline vanilla case that people point to is that, hey, like if you have an account lockout that isn't working, or excuse me, is vulnerable. So let's say, or you just don't have an account lockout. Uh, if you also don't have like decent password complexity rules. Um, So you have a case where there's no rate limit on attempting bad passwords and you have passwords that are potentially weak. And then you can also enumerate one set of two credentials. Usually it's, you know, email address or username, but we'll just say email address for this case and uh, a password, right? You already know half the credentials if you can enumerate. Now, if there are other flaws with authentication that allow for you to do this sort of brute forcing um login that's kind of the vanilla case people talk about but there are other very valid cases and and it usually is chained with other i mean almost always it's chained with other weaknesses in the application so a good example would be uh two that come to mind are a real simple one would be like idor so let's say i'm able to you know go ahead and uh um performs IDOR operation, update an account, but I need to have the email address. Like let's say I'm doing a, a, a account update and it takes, um, you know, an email address, uh, takes maybe a, a, a new password without any, you know, old password required. Maybe it maybe it has some other attributes you can update. So I need to know the email address of the other valid users uh, in the application so I can update their password just as like a vanilla case. Um, you know, this is a time where another weakness, IDOR, in the application leads leads to you using that enumeration to like create a really, really good uh, practical attack. There are other weird ones, right? Like one we talk about in the secure co- code review course. One example we talked about is an application I had tested where you gave it an email address in your browser. You, you said, here's the password. Here's the email account I want to reset a password for. So when you did that, you hit submit. The application sets a cookie and it also uh, in your browser and it also sends you an email and then so you would go into and I'm guessing the hope was of the developers was that when you clicked on the password reset link, they emailed you that it has a token in it that you're going to be opening that link in the same browser they set that cookie at because that's what they use to determine which email account they're going to reset a password for that's it, so they like I said just to re real briefly cover that you go you submit a uh, email address into the application sets a session that says essentially like this is the email address of this user um then when you go through the password reset flow separately click on this link gives you a token that they, they they validate that the token is good they're not validating that the token is tied to any specific user so they say the token's good you can proceed forward to submit this uh, you know form with the new password. And then when you do that, it reads the cookie that had been set in your browser to determine which user you're updating the password on. This is a real case, this is a real scenario. This was a real app that I looked at the code for um, and did some dynamic testing with. So if obviously I was able to enumerate email addresses, this would be problematic, right? Because obviously I can then just go through and start going through this process of resetting everybody's email addresses and then using valid tokens to you know, yep. send mm-hmm. send the token to my my appropriate email account, like a yeah. <laughs> browser that had somebody else's email address on there and you know, go through the flow on that browser. So anyways, yep. those are a couple examples, vanilla cases of uh, why enumeration can be a real problematic thing when coupled with other vulnerabilities.
1: And that's, that's exactly what I, what I wanted to show, right? Like um, with this, Um, with this screen share that I'll drop up here in a minute is, is how it can escalate. Right. So the enumeration ability actually leads to, you know, the ability to actually, in this case, to, to brute force passwords. Right. So we're looking at an error message here during the registration flow, one of the options is to send a user a set of temporary credentials, right? So like a username and a password. Um, But this gets overly descriptive. If you look at the error messages that are returned here, like I put in a username and you'll notice that it, it gives me back a pretty specific error response in the username field during the registration flow. User has already registered their digital identity, right? So the user ob- this user ID obviously already exists within, the, within the, the scope of this application. But even better is I get a password description below that, which is the user ID and password. What is it?
0: I, yeah, no, I can't. Combination you entered doesn't match any entries in, in the system. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And so I'm like, oh, awesome. well, th- that's amazing, right? Um, because what happens when I put in my username and, well, OK, so the next screenshot that I've got here, uh, I got to flip back to that other screen if I can find it. Sorry. So the other one here, right? OK, here's the secondary um, or the next step in this process, which is user ID and password combination you entered doesn't match any entries in this system for the username field as well as the password field, right? Um, And so like at that point, that's the, that's the initial enumeration. But the third iteration, I didn't pull this one up. The third iteration here is with a valid username and a valid password. The only thing that you get is the response from the username error message and not the password error message. Right. So you get user has already registered their digital identity, but there's no error message that comes in after password. So it's giving us the ability to actually, um, whoops, brute force the uh, the username and passwords that are associated with it. And even better is if I brute force through this form, as opposed to the login farm, there's no account lockout associated with it. So I can. Yeah, I it, it because you know, who's going to brute force the registration process, right? They're going to brute force on the login screen and move on with it. So, and this is like, this was discovered in the past week, right? This is not something that is, hey, it was only 10, 12 years ago that we were actually seeing all of this. Yeah all of the, the, the flaws, right? And, you know, we talk about SQL injection stuff that we rarely find anymore. And it was more common, you know, 10, 15 years ago than it is nowadays. But user enumeration is everywhere, which is the reason that I bring it up because, it, you know, it is kind of a fun one that we've... There's always different edge cases. That's what I wanted to say. There's always different edge cases that you run into.
0: So. It's it's definitely a challenge with social platforms where, you know, they they want you to know each other's basically part of the credentials that you use to log in, which is, you know, your uh, username typically, right. Your handle, whatever you've chosen for social media, that's typically what you log in with and um, it's a, it's a bit difficult because it's, it's known. Um, and in those cases, you know, enumeration isn't necessarily such a big deal. And in some cases it still is sometimes they want the email address decoupled from the username. Right. So yep. there's, um, I guess a good example would be GitHub. We have a decoupled, we have the option for private emails so that we don't disclose your, uh, whatever's been marked as a private email, it doesn't pop up. In any case, user enumeration becomes pretty difficult, uh, you know, because a lot of social sites, even in that case, you know, you can log in through the username or email address. So they really have to have a robust anti ATO account takeover, uh, sorry, anti account takeover uh, strategy. Which usually is combining metrics about you know when you last logged in, how, what you know, basically collecting. And I'm not saying we're this is this is just a generic. Just want to be very clear, this is just generic information. But typically, you'll collect some sort of metrics that allow you to fingerprint effectively the person who's trying to log in, in tandem with you know obviously two factor authentic or I should two I should say multi factor authentication. Um, and then you know, particularly um, apps versus SMS, because you know SIM swapping exists and it's pretty prevalent and all that, that good stuff. But still, two factor auth, whether or multi factor auth, whether it's text or apps, it's still better than not having it at all, right? Um, also, you've got to have some pretty pretty robust uh, sort of like uh, rate limiting and. Uh, ability to, to to withstand denial of service attacks, um, and then it goes to that's just the login part. Then we talk about like you know you you mentioned there there's more to this than than uh, just the login page. There's the there's also like forgot password type stuff, account updates. You know you, you've got to be mindful of it in in, in many many places. So uh, for instance, putting in like high risk pseudo filters or high risk filters. Where it's like, hey, uh re-log in because it's been, you know, I don't know, a few hours since you last logged in and you want to like change your password or your update your email address to something different or something like that, you know, or you want to change out your keys, your security keys, or whatever it is, like you should probably re-log in. So there's all these like other things around enumeration in terms of like, you know, anti-account takeover strategies, but like enumeration is a funky one because no it's not as black and white and and yeah. easy at times as you you would uh, expect. So it, it's a fun yeah. one. It's a fun one because it, it usually leads to some interesting conversations like this.
1: Yeah, and it it leads to yeah it leads to interesting flaws, and it definitely kind of shows a maturity of the the threat landscape or the you know the analysis that's gone into the threat landscape for an application. Um, when we start to find things like this, right? Because it's it it does require you to take a step back and realize where you actually identify those users. Um, and there's always those edge cases that I, yeah, they just throw a wrench in things, right? I like I, I know we could pull you know Justin on as well, and he, we've got we've got so many war stories about user enumeration flaws in weird places. Because of the difficulty in actually solving that issue, and uh, like I've thrown up some of the like the web testing, you know, web app testing guide from OWASP or the authentication cheat sheet, but even those don't go into depth in all the ways that we can fail here. I, I mean, granted, they're cheat sheets; they're like you know, they're kind of overviews or summaries on how to identify these issues, but you know, in the case of what we were looking at with the security questions, there is, it's a positive negative response that doesn't actually give us an error message. So if you're only looking for error messages, you're going to miss that uh, that nuance of the security questions that come back randomly every time that you ask for an invalid username, right? And that positive ne- negative like blind response that that comes back is what we often miss as, developers writing unit tests as security people because we're looking for the big glaring red letters that basically say hey there's a problem here and this is what the problem is as opposed to kind of the nuances that go into it so you know if you're testing for these applic- or these sorts of flaws if you're developing an authentication system let's just think about where that's actually happening and this doesn't even push us into, you know, like the cookie realm that we use cookies for authentication, because that's a whole separate discussion that we could have, right? And I, like, I think, you know, each of these that we dive into in the course, we spend a fair amount of time actually analyzing and, and stepping through even in like HAPSEC 101. So
0: just an overview, just an overview. You know, one thing I would love to see more of is, you know, because we've got these, uh, Uh, various open source scanners that are doing like, you know, they're looking for sort of uh, your typical vanilla stuff, right? Like cross-site scripting, SQL injection, misconfigurations, things like that inside of uh, applications um, like Bandit, Brakeman, stuff like that, right? Uh, Open source scanners. But I'd love to see more that are focused on the, because a lot of these uh, authentication I don't know if you call them frameworks but definitely libraries popular libraries ones that are from that if you're working in that ecosystem you've come across it multiple times right like the popular ones i'd love to see more scanners looking at these because most of them operate through configuration files as well as like you know certain options inside of uh if it's an mbc app you know controllers and models there's configurations in the controller and models there are also but usually uh, an actual legitimate configuration file that controls certain things like account lockouts, your strategies for recovery, things like that. And I'd love to see uh, some scanners um, built to kind of parse those and quickly enumerate like weaknesses and, and the choices people make. Uh, so if you're if you're at all inspired to do such a thing, it would be very helpful um, to yeah. see more of that. Um, for free no, we'll, we'll sponsor you or something i can't can't promise to be much but yeah um but anyways well it's, it's it's
1: like we are seeing more and more of those kind of customized scanners or targeted scanning that happens against configurations and other things like think about some grep think about some of the other tools that are out there because i like I, I mean, security's become a bigger issue, right? Like, you know, 10 years ago, that sort of request probably would have gone by the wayside because it's like, how do you do this for, you know, .NET, ASP, .NET applications, Java, you know, struts applications, whatever, like, was popular back then, right? But... um Nowadays, we do have scanners that are specific to those, like if you've got access to the source code, you should be able to see what like, an Auth0 configuration looks like, what, you know, devise, how it's implementing different things on, you know, in, on a Ruby on Rails application, or, right, like, or to Django application, like if you're using the built in contrib auth functions, there's probably a way that we could suss this out pretty quickly, if it was targeted. And, and it would be an interesting project to drop in there. Um,
0: I did. You know. I, I did want to bring up real quick. Hoodie Pony um, Daniel brings up a good point about um, about timing attacks. He, I mean, he kind of brought it up by saying he saw a situation where invalid credential returned immediately, and, and um, valid but incorrect credentials returned. Uh, take took like a second or two. And I bring this up because I remember it was like maybe 2014, 2015 I think it was twenty fourteen ish timeline around then. Where um, there was quite a bit of debate about the f- efic- efficacy of timing attacks and if it's like practical, but like uh, I think even then, you know, I remember John Poolin, um, who now works with me, but you know, Seth, John, myself, we've all worked together for years now. Anyways, um, John proved proved out, you know, timing attacks work and had built, I think it was like a BERT plugin or something to do it. And uh, it, it, yeah, anyways, it was, it was effective. He made a video on it. It's probably buried somewhere in the bowels of YouTube. I, I mean, maybe I can find it sometime, put it in our Slack channel. Anyways, why I say this is now, internet is like so, so quick and so um, reliable and dependable uh, and systems are so efficient, you know, that I, I think it's actually more effective now. Uh, I think that you, you will be able to, the reason, the reason I say that is the, 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 primary argument that I remember people having was that, um, there were two, the signal, they couldn't get a good baseline for what was like, a, a you know, we're talking about milliseconds, right? So it's hard to get a good gauge when there's enough no- network noise and variances. It's hard to see, um, you know, like just sort of even on a large scale of a lot of requests, like where's the variance, right? But now I don't think that's such a, a challenge. And I mean, I'm open to being wrong on this, but I do think, like, given given um, you know, given given how uh, what am I trying to say, how well things work, um, mm-hmm. my assumption would be that the baseline would be easier to establish.
1: Well, I mean, it goes back to Moore's law, right? You know, everything gets quicker and it, we're, you know, from a CPU perspective, like everything is faster. Like, And, and um, to your point, that argument years ago was probably pretty valid because of network paths. And, you know, you're going over some DSL link across to somebody's system and it's, it's hard to account for the speed and yeah. But nowadays I like I've, I've seen it within the past couple of months for sure, is that um, using these like uh, the predicted, well, uh, no, the... um, Dang it! I'm like losing it today, Ken. Uh, the hashing, no. like the the modern modern hashing al- adaptive hashing algorithms. There you go. I knew I was going to get there. So you're using bcrypt. You're using PBKDF2, the adaptive hashing algorithms to encrypt or to hash passwords. I almost said encrypt passwords. There we go. Um, to hash passwords and then to check that hash. Um, there is a work factor that's involved with that, right? So like bcrypt, it'll be a work factor of 12 or 20, depending on what you put. But if an invalid username comes in and you don't actually perform that work, you're gonna return a lot quicker than you would if you were, if you were encrypting something or hashing something using one of those adaptive hashing algorithms. And that's an easy, easy miss to make in code right uh because you're just trying to get this feature out and yeah it's it's going to happen for sure um and i was trying to remember i think i showed you one uh, six months ago or so i'd have to dig back through my archives right uh but like we have seen those timing attacks work practically against applications within the last six months um mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's well, just gonna get worse yeah
0: yeah, and I mean, how do you solve that? I mean, I, I think the main way that we talk about solving this in today's world is through constant time comparisons. So you yeah. have to and I mean I think like uh probably a lot of people watching this are familiar with this, but for those that aren't, um you you do have the ability with most crypto like libraries in general, whether it's, you know, again, like it doesn't really matter which language you're using. There's usually a a solid crypto library. uh, Not usually there's just always crypto libraries built to do things. And the solid ones usually have this uh, notion of a constant time comparison um, function where it, you know, essentially it does an operation every single time to ensure that no matter no matter what happens, so like let's say we are looking up whether or not an email address, address exists, and then we're going to do something different, whether it exists or it doesn't exist, right? That in and of itself means there's going to be two separate branches of where this code executes, and that in turn means there's, of course, going to be some additional overhead involved, a database lookup, right? And then, of course, using maybe the object returned from the database in memory, doing something with that, whether it's loading the attributes, whatever Um, it's going to take up some compute resources is my point. And if you have two different routes, you can go or more, of course there's going to be some, some different compute time and time really involved. And there's going to be variances. So the way you, you negate that is by ending that function routine with a, or, when you when you uh, start the routine uh, doing a constant time comparison and you will always return whatever no matter what happens no matter what operations continue to happen after that you always return with the same amount of time um, during like an authentication function so that's probably the the main way that I've seen uh, prevented
1: yeah so you say that but I mean honestly how many developers have gone to the level of thinking about timing attacks Right. I don't know, but it's it's in our, I mean,
0: for us, we're, it's in our secure code requirements for that reason, because like you said, I don't think people do, you're right. I don't like, or maybe you're not, maybe you are just posing the question, but I think in that question, yeah. I think you're like, no, yeah, I don't think it's a, a common thought.
1: Well, I, I, so I kind of go back to, to, you know, like yeah, we're all over the place today, Ken. But you know, this goes back to like training <laughs> developers, like from a secure coding perspective, or even just like a security awareness perspective. Because it's one thing to be like, "Hey, you should have an error message that shows whether or not a user exists." That's that that is a easy confirmation and an easy like problem to solve. Um, yes, Mark, you're right. It does def- depend on experience of the developer. But then you also have that, okay, where does that discussion lead that you're actually starting to talk about the pros and cons of using adaptive hashing algorithms and branches in code as you're doing database lookups based on usernames and whether or not that returns a constant time or, you know, at least a variable time that can't actually be predicted or tracked that results in user enumeration, right? That flaw is so much more nuanced that I just... I don't know how to how to push that out, right? Like this is where we start to depend on senior developers to mark's point, right? Developers with experience that have actually seen this in the past or product security people that are aware that these issues pop up and can push that down and set those sorts of restrictions, but at a startup that's, you know, flying a million miles an hour trying to push out features, it's just not something that's going to come up, right? I I know that it's not. Um, so, I, Mike, I kind of go back to how do you, how do you, how do you educate developers about these like nuanced flaws um, outside of telling them to listen to our podcast, right, Ken?
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, really, really, if you have a security team, that's why requirements. Again, I'm, I'm going to point back to requirements. I think that's why it exists because it is a baseline level of hygiene, right? And this yeah. could be when we talk about in our requirements when we talk about uh, secure constant time comparisons we also talk about it with like i mean it's not, yeah of course you can use it for password comparisons but you can do that for a lot of things you do it for hmac validation you can do it for all kinds of interesting places where you need to do a comparison of two values um and don't want you know variances in timing returns so we we i think i think it's great to do education i think dave ferguson when he was on made some good points about how little or how much uh, you know training is effective depending on how it's applied. There were nuances there for those who hadn't seen the episode. So again, it's not always black and white. Very, yeah. I, I would say it's probably more often than not, not black and white. Anyways, Dave Ferguson brought up some good points, how to train people, what's effective, what's not. Um, go back and check out that episode uh, if you haven't seen it. But I do think there's maybe a little bit of awareness and education, but ultimately- you gotta have secure code requirements to have a baseline level of hygiene. Because no matter how well you educate people, it's not always going to be effective. But you know what it is making people stick to uh, requirements? Yep,
1: requirements—a paved path, some way that you know a security feature set that's already been implemented and is tried and true. Is tried and true is definitely a better a better way to go about it rather than just you know winging it right i mean in general that's going to be you know that's going to be a valid statement across the board um cool so the other flaw i know we've only got like you know 10 15 minutes left but the 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 other flaw that i saw in the last week that was super interesting actually had to do with the use of um a web application firewall sitting in front of an application Application is running in a corporate environment, but the web application firewall is limiting access to certain functionality based on the... Uh, the location coming in. So you go through the web application firewall if you are coming from outside, right? Like you want to access this application and it gives you access to a limited amount of functionality. If you're internal on the corporate network, it gives you access to the whole application, right? There's no restrictions. So there's there's certain like administrative functions that are only accessible, like if I wanna change someone another user's password, you have to actually be on the VPN or on the corporate network in order to change another user's fun, uh, password. But if I wanna change my own password, I can do that accessing the system on the internet at large, right? Through the, through the web application firewall. Um, now, this, so it was running, you know, I'm not gonna dig too far into what the tech is, but the web application firewall was doing a match Based on the URL and looking for like say slash admin right to do a password reset and it would automatically kick you back to a an error page if you couldn't access slash admin or you're coming from the internet as large, but there are always like this is this is always the case. There's always bypasses that are available, right? Um, and this one went back to the error message that was actually being displayed behind the scenes when i started to introduce other character sets into the url right so uh, okay so back end right so you think about apache
0: oh apache? i see oh, yeah oh, Do sorry, you see no, where go i'm ahead, going sorry. okay <laughs> yeah so URL, that's apache. awesome apache
1: think about how apache does processing on the url right um, okay. what is the first thing that it does when it gets a url it it does first a url Yeah, it breaks it down and it does URL decoding, right? So, you know, in case there is something like, you know, the question mark gets encoded as something else or it's coming through a proxy that's been, you know, encoded, whatever, right? Um, And the web application firewall would understand like the slashes, they go to a percent to F, right? So it automatically decode those. But the different components in the path itself, like slash admin, the second that I say change admin to a percent 61 DMIN, it would bypass the web application filter and allow that to go through. And Apache on the back end would automatically decode percent 61 decode. to an A to slash admin. So I was able to bypass the web application firewall restrictions on location just by changing, like just by URL encoding characters like actual like, you know, letter characters as opposed to like the normal, like what you would see in percent 2F for a, a slash or a e- percent 3D for an equal sign. So uh, it's That's one awesome. of those misalignments as you're starting to talk about, that one was fun, right? The second that I got back an actual response ec- coming externally to those, um, you know, th- this is why we do security is cause it gives us a dopamine hit every once in a while. Right, Ken? That's the, but yeah
0: well but this is a double edged sword because how many times like i don't know i'm sure this is ha- i know never mind this has definitely happened to you i'm sure of it because it's happened to me so many times where i have the code running locally i'm looking at the code i'm like oh that's a vulnerability for sure i should be able to traverse grab a file that's outside the whatever like i should be able to to pull off some attack usually it's has to do with like manipulating the path doing some traversal Stuff like that, right? Where then it works locally and you're like, oh, great. I just proved it out. Let me go do it on the production site. And then it's because it's a different stack, you know, underlying web stack. Like like you said, you know, locally, it's probably, I mean, you can run Nginx locally, but usually it's it's some local, you know, meant for just like WebRick, for instance, type stuff, like locally running a uh, web server. Not a lot, you know, there's no proxy, reverse proxy type stuff. There's no load balancer. There's no underlying different server version, uh, uh, sorry, different version of the server, um, different type of server, stuff like that. So while, while it'll work in local development, you can definitely prove it out and be like, yeah, you're 100% vulnerable. I saw the code. I was able to prove it out locally. You can't pull it off on a production system. So that's why I say it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's kind of a pain because you're like, I have a super critical vuln. And yeah, it's still like a defense in depth type thing where, or I mean, I probably wouldn't categorize it as defense in depth, but in terms of like a risk rating, but uh, in terms of in my head, it's probably more of like, yeah, you should shore that up, but you're not vulnerable as it stands right now. Um, yeah. But that's like frustrating as hell when you have such a cool bone like that and you just can't get it to exploit in production systems.
1: Well, and so and this, because this of the, ed- the web stack. Yeah because of the web stack exactly but this was interesting because it was like okay in the code itself i'm not actually seeing this right this is only it's implemented in apache like you know they're deploying to apache in the you know and um The only reason I actually found this is because they wanted an actual test of those web application firewall rules because this is a key control for this application. They don't want anyone to be able to access that sensitive functionality from an external IP address, right? Um, And so the only place that that was actually in play was their production instance. So this this is a case where It's vulnerable into production, but nowhere else, right? Because they they, they don't have those (laughs) controls in place, right? And so I was just like, it's it's fascinating how the complexity of these different components, like the more complexity that we introduce, these edge cases pop up that we don't actually, uh, I mean, we don't actually think about, we don't actually find unless you test it in that in that true environment the way it's deployed in production and actually being
0: used. So, so when you're looking yeah. at that app, are you seeing a lack of authorization applied on those administrative endpoints, And then you're just like, uh, but I I'm confused. Yeah. If you, uh, cause I'm so, confused uh, if like, yeah.
1: Yeah. So no, not necessarily. Like, so I, if I, if I log in as a regular user and not an administrator, even if I try and bypass the I bypass oh. the web application firewall, it still I will see. give me the the typical internal response that I'm not authorized to like change someone else's password. But I have authentic I, I have administrative credentials, I log in. And I access that URL and all of a sudden I can start changing things from an external plate. You know, I, it's not only changing other users' passwords. So this is it's an, like roles and yeah, other things. Yeah. So
0: this is missing function level access control or m- misconfigured, but it's, it's not in the typical way where it's just missing. It's actually more of just, so it's not te- yeah. te- technically MIFLAC because authorization filters and decorators exist within the application, but it's yeah. that they are specifically attempting to prevent any outside entity who's obtained credentials or otherwise can get to that administrative interface, like validly, whether they stole a session or whatever it might be. It's yep. like preventing them from doing that from an external IP. So the only check is not within the application. It's within the WAF.
1: Yep. Yep. In that yeah, case, I it's within the WAF. Enough. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, but it, I mean, it, this kind of goes back to the, you know, the stuff that James Kettle was talking, or is it like all his research with, uh, um, htp request smuggling as well right the second that you start playing with encoding and how like one proxy handles or one app web application firewall or nginx how that handles return characters as opposed to how apache return handles return recur- characters behind the scenes and you start to have these mish- mismatch with sessions with uh, you know protective controls uh when they fail they can fail spectacularly right is is where i'm getting with that it's it's kind of a it it, i i mean they're fun to explore i'll be honest like really fun to explore but it's uh you know initially when i started looking at it i was like oh they've got you know this this regular expression that they've written into the web application firewall that seems to be doing things properly and then the second that i started to see um error responses come back from apache that actually showed me the full path that i entered in there and it was decoding the you know the percent 20 you know 2f's that were the slashes that i was pushing through i was like oh it's doing decoding in one spot but it's not doing it in another spot and we've got mismatches and
0: yeah, so it's enumeration yeah. just in a different context, just like it is blind yeah. versus error-based SQL injection. It's still enumeration; it's just in a different bend. So,
1: and then, and then that was what I did, right? Like, so I'm 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 pushing things through this web application firewall. Uh, one of the first things I did was I started to drop in different just tokens and other things that maybe weren't associated with the application. Uh, different uh, tokens or different words to see. What else was restricted on that server based on the web application firewall, because what else is considered sensitive, right? You can enumerate the sensitive endpoints based on the responses coming back from the web application firewall as well, not just from the application code. Because like Apache, right? Like, okay, they're running Tomcat. There's like a management application that's running underneath that, right? They don't want that accessible externally either, but you can use the same bypass methods to get past it. Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway. Uh, anyway. See, no, it's, it's, I see how you brought it all back around. You just, that's what you yeah. did. You brought it all back around. All back to your It's
1: all related, right? Yeah. It's, it's all, all connected. It's all connected. Yes.
0: Very cool. No, I love it. Um, I love hearing the practical. And then, you know, it's just fun to hear uh, something that is dynamic testing related to, I mean, that's fun, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. we, we, we do so much on the code review side. It's, I think I was telling you, I, I, I you know, I enjoy dynamic testing. I just don't get to do a ton of it, you know? Uh, yeah. But yep. yeah. And it's usually within a time box scenario. It's, I'm usually like, yeah, this can be faster for me to look through code, but anyways, yeah. that's cool, man. Yep. That's pretty dope. Cool. Like, yeah, that's the fun part. When people ask me about career progression, and I you know, I kind of talk about the like bouncing between different roles, meaning like, you know, whether it's internal defender or corporate, like what are the pros and cons, like working for a company to defend them or being a consultant or something else? What are the pro- like professional trainer, like Jimmy who we had on last week, what are the pros and cons? And I always tell them like the pros of being a consultant is that you get to look at new stuff and different stuff all the time. And it's funny because like, I think I told you this week that there's been a couple of times over the, this last year where like there was a new technology and I learned about it from doing stuff, you know, like our podcast, like the after dark, not a new technology, but stuff that's new that I, it's being introduced in my professional life uh, just through like our interactions and working on open source stuff and like the podcast and everything I'm learning about it um, because I feel like consultants sometimes get to see first what, uh, what, you know, especially if you're working with, you know, tech, tech companies, Silicon Valley styles, you know, pushing the boundary type companies, you're going to see new technologies before, you know, they get adopted at say the enterprise level. Yeah. Uh, So anyways, it's super cool. You get introduced to a lot of different things and this is like one of those and you get to, you know, you get to vary between dynamic testing, code review, maybe you're doing threat models, maybe you're giving training, maybe you're doing something entirely different. Um, Helping them build a program, you get a lot of like experience. So, anyways, there are there are definitely still pros to to heavy pros to to doing consulting. I think the yeah. the only con is the, the grind. It's quite a grind, and <laughs> it is. And Bad. it's a pro and a negative. But sometimes you know how it goes, man. You got to get up to speed on a new technology quick. You may you may be told in two weeks or a week you're going to be. Or it could be the end of the week and they say on Monday, you got a new stack you got to like look at. It, so figure it out, you know? And so that's also a good thing, but it can also be an exhausting thing too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's There's always something new. I mean, the recently, and you know this too, we've mentioned it a couple of times that we've been getting pushed more and more into the Web3, like the blockchain space, because, and and the stuff that we're seeing on that side of the house is just wild, right? Like, you know, i'm sure yeah and super fun but you know it's it's definitely pushing us in other directions but you know that being said we should well, yeah, have some crypto high it.
0: performance libraries yeah i mean you now you have to think about different things you've got uh some 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 obviously some complicated in, in a lot of cases financial transactions yeah. going down um so it's it's a really new awesome space to to exist in You're, i think it's dope that you're like doing that
1: Yeah. It's, it's been super interesting, right? Like, you know, we had Ken Toler on and talked about some of that in his space as well. Right. Because it, like you start, if you go back to enumeration, you go back to timing attacks and smart contracts and how fast things actually execute on the different chains. And, you know, you have a slow chain that doesn't mind very quickly. What happens when that smart contract is out of date or, you know, like it's, it's wild, like some of the stuff you have to come up with and the threat analysis that you have to do, as opposed to a traditional web application that we've been doing for twenty years, right? Anyway, yeah. So there's exactly. always something new to learn. Yeah you know, don't don't be afraid of it. Yeah. You you can definitely learn. So. Cool. All right. We well, you had a question about now.
0: real. Cool. Oh, he did. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to answer Daniel's question real quick. Just some examples of like good authentication libraries. Passport comes to mind for like Node and Express. Devise for um uh what is it? Rails. Um yeah. I guess with Django, you mentioned the built-in contrib auth. I actually don't I don't know what the popular ones within Django are to be honest with you. Um You know, I'm kind of trying to look that up right now. Uh I can't remember yeah, anymore would, what the good stuff was. I would was.
1: discount like some of like the auth zero libraries, right? Like I, I yeah, I don't necessarily Auth0. Like, yeah. But Omni yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. That's authorization, but yeah, like auth zero. Yeah. Um, if you're using like AWS, like the libraries for like the identity stuff behind the scenes, um, I as a developer, right, like coming at authentication. I'm going to look to offload that with to someone that like yeah friends don't let friends write their own authentic- authentication routines they just don't right from a developer perspective um because it is so difficult and there's so many of these edge cases it's much easier to go and depend on auth0 and then suppress the error messages so you don't like you know show the you know the front end that you're uh, you know that username doesn't exist right um at least like you can you can take it to that that level and then depend on them to actually do the timing attacks and handle you know how that lookup happens and yeah protecting those passwords and then it makes it easy to do things like MFA as well so
0: that's that's what oh, I yeah would push. yeah 100% I agree yeah I mean definitely definitely have MFA available and incentivize it as much as possible, if you can. Like, I've heard of people giving discounts on their plans for enabling MFA, and if that's what you have to do to get your user base to use it, do it. It's going to save you money in the long run because of just the sheer amount of energy, time, the teams you have to build out. like, account takeover shit is so terrible. That is a whole, like, that's a whole other field and mold at times. So our platform health team, I love them. They're amazing, and it's a hard job
1: yes it is and i think I, yeah, I do have to mention i think i just stole that from uh, leisure suit larry on our uh on the slack channel don't let your friends roll their own auth framework i think that got in my head so
0: i smell a new t-shirt design <laughs> yes exactly or sticker or something i don't know we'll we figure got the something crocs out. and socks Sox. and uh <laughs> and yeah
1: friends don't let friends roll their own auth framework. i love it yeah and then jwts suck right yeah there we go (laughs) they don't sorry i should yeah (laughs) but yeah context matters but yeah i don't use them
0: for like replacement for sessions that's the general gist for web sessions all right sweet cool
1: okay all right well yeah thanks everybody for joining today um it's been a good discussion appreciate all the interaction and everybody on slack poking holes in our in our podcast episode. Um, anything else you want to add before we call it today, Ken?
0: Nope, but I did just set the channel topic to don't let uh, don't let your friends roll their own off framework. Awesome.
1: Yep, cool. and if you would yeah. like a t-shirt no. if you would like a t-shirt, hit me up on Slack. Um, we'll get some addresses, physical addresses and shirt size and we'll go from there.
0: Oh, you know what? one thing we need to do, we need to get Shubs on here. Remember we said we we're going to do that yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do. I need to do I need to do that. Let me make a make, make, make a note here. Sorry. Okay, cool. I need to just Ooh. remember. All right, man. Cool.
1: We'll talk more. All right. Thanks everybody. We'll see y'all next week.